All right. Welcome to the podcast, the Multifamily Investor Nation podcast. Looking forward to the episode today. We're going to be talking with the Trident Multifamily Group with Mike Van, Carl Suvercrop, Rodney, and Rodney Miller. So looking forward to this episode today. Welcome, guys. Thanks nice for having me here. Time, well, this is going to be a little bit different. So lately, we've had uh, um, a couple of, of groups that have wanted to kind of do these podcasts together to kind of have the team there to kind of, you know, fill in certain gaps that might not be able to be, able to be filled in by just one person. So it's great to have all three of you here. We're going to get a lot of good, deep information on this portfolio acquisition that you had that was out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was 174 units. You closed it in November 25th, 2019. It was a two portfolio property, 102 units in one and 72 units in the other called Stratford and Brownstone out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I wanted you to get us started first before we dive into this property and just take, you know, a minute or two and, you know, kind of go around, you know, have Carl start, then Mike, and then Rodney, and just kind of share with us a little bit about your background and where you are right now in the multifamily space. Okay, thanks, Dan. Yeah, um, originally from South Africa, uh, officially immigrated here in 2015, and um, had sold off a, a security business in South Africa, and uh, wanted to get going in real estate over here. Uh, I was very fortunate in that my wife has been in the apartment industry for near on 20 years. So uh, spending time with her really got me into uh, understanding the operations and, and from a business point of view, understanding the business of apartments. So uh, that is what I've been working towards. And then uh, Mike Rodney and I met up um, a couple of years back and uh, decided to start pursuing syndication together. And um, yeah, closed on our first deal together uh, earlier this year. Um, after doing, I personally had done a, a few passive deals as a limited partner in 2018. Uh, then we closed on a deal in early 2019. And now this is our second acquisition. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, so I have been investing in real estate for close to 20 years now um, in my own portfolio for uh, up until the last uh, two years. I never had any partners, had just done uh, solo acquisitions and, and slowly built up over time. Uh, started off with like a lot of people do with, um, you know, single family, small multifamily and traded up into some smaller apartments and then uh, sold my very first acquisition uh, in 2017 and bought a 55 unit uh, apartment complex of my own um, and uh, did a, you know, deep value add on that. It was a pretty distressed property and got that up and going. Um, after deciding uh, to hit my five-year plan of retiring from corporate that uh, I needed to do to scale a little faster. And so uh, joined a, a mentoring program, met Carl and Rodney a couple of years ago, uh, was in a few other partnership groups. And uh, when I met them, decided we would pursue stuff together. Did our first acquisition earlier this year. Uh, that went so well, we had great synergy decided to form Trident Multifamily and pursue deals only with each other going forward and build the company. And uh, so we, we uh, acquired our second um, uh, Trident Multifamily property this uh, past November, well, just a few weeks ago. And I, uh, I, I've been self-employed since I'm about 27 years old. I, I uh, own medical practices like you, Dan, and 
got into it at an early age, but around 40, I realized I didn't have much of a retirement, started freaking out a little bit and, and started trying to figure out how I was going to someday be able to, to retire. And I don't even know what that means because I'll never really retire, but uh, decided single family homes was the way to go. I became a home investor franchisee here in Oklahoma. I'm in Oklahoma City, by the way, and um, started buying single family houses, started that way like a lot of folks do, picked up, I own about a hundred, a little over a hundred houses. And they decided, um, I'm a slow learner a few years ago that I needed to go bigger, faster. So started looking to multifamily and, um, and, you know, uh, started going to conferences and kind of uh, just learning about it. I spent a couple of years just learning before I, before I did anything and, um, met these guys and like, you know, the rest is history. We, 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 uh, had an alignment of interest, decided that we would uh, work together to, to take down some properties. And our first deal went so smooth, uh, we decided to form Trident and uh, took the, down this, uh, this 174 unit uh, property. And we're, we're looking for our next deal. We're calling our heading up to Wichita, Kansas tomorrow to go look at uh, another uh, property. And uh, yeah, things have just been going really good. We really enjoy it. It's, it's uh it's everything I thought it would be, and it's just a lot of fun. We we enjoy uh, develop, developing these deals, uh, improving them, and giving our investors a great return. It's just a it's a fun business. So, one of the things I, I'm curious about because there's obviously three of you, and 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 my group, PassiveInvesting.com, we have three people in our group as far as partnerships, and kind of have our own different roles and responsibilities. We kind of stay in certain lanes. Do you, does your group have that as well? Or do you guys kind of like help each other out in different areas or is there like really defined roles and responsibilities that each partner has? Well, we, we do have uh, certain strengths that we play to. Um, of course, we bounce ideas off of each other, uh, even within those, uh, our own lanes, so to speak. Um, but, uh, but yes, we do have uh, specialty, specialty areas, so to speak. Um, you know, Carl's more than the numbers guy. Uh, I have uh, my family had a construction business growing up. So I have you know, that background as far as CapEx and, and things of that nature. And, and Rodney does a, a lot with our investors um, and the legal side. That's pretty cool because there's a lot, that sounds like it's very similar to our setup because I'm primarily investor relations and, and marketing and overall strategic objectives, you know, piece of the business. And then we have Danny Rendazza, who is all of our numbers and financial underwriting and due diligence and stuff. And then we have Brandon Abbott, who is more of our construction lead and does a lot of the acquisitions and things. But you're right, Mike, that a lot of these roles are kind of intertwined. So you definitely have lanes you've got to stay in, but you know, at the, at the same time, they're all interweaving. And so there's definitely some, some interplay within each one of them. And it's important to know what everybody else in the partnership is doing. So, you know, the decisions that you make in your particular role, how it affects the other positions as well. Absolutely. 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 And we're, we're taking it to the next level here pretty soon. We're, we're going to go offsite and do some really big management building and, and really like set our, our strategy you know, and, and put all that into place and really, really, you know, because this is a business. We're just looking to scale, leverage, and do it uh, responsibly and make sure that we, we do it the right way. So our next step is to really focus on our, our, our management group. And uh, that'll take a few days, you know, you know, every quarter to keep realigning ourselves with our goals and, 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 right. and uh, where we want to take this company. 
Well, I will agree with you that this is a business. And I think a lot of times we see people that are getting into this and think of it more as a hobby or some sort of game that they're playing. And it truly needs to be treated as a business when you're yes. bringing on investor funds and you have that big responsibility of making sure that that investment goes well, it needs to be treated as a business. And I'm actually in the process right now of writing a book about it actually being a business. You know, there, I don't think that there's anything easy about what we do. There's a lot of different pieces and moving parts and one thing could be, can go wrong. It can cause a lot of different issues. And so to, to, to be able to play the game, if you want to call it a game that way, as a business, I think is the right way to do it. So let's we dive saw, in. Saw, oh, right I'm sorry, now. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Yep. Okay. I'll say, let's dive in right now to this particular acquisition, which is that 174 units out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like we said earlier, it's a two portfolio or, or a two property portfolio, 102 units in one and 72 units in the other. And so I'm going to pose some questions to you as we're going throughout and one of you three can jump in as you guys, as you guys see fit. Uh, but I want to first talk about how you actually found this particular asset. Girl. So um, I found it. I'm the, as we said, numbers and, and I like to say the gopher. So, uh, you know, nothing can replace just reaching out to brokers. And uh, uh, we, we set quite a, a high uh, activity rate for reaching out to new brokers about a year ago. And uh, this deal came across. Um, just it, it was marketed, um, but it was marketed by an out-of-state broker. Um, so, you know, at the point when we first identified and engaged on the property, we had just had an LOI accepted on our first property. So we, we kind of gave them the, the thanks, but no thanks. Um, and the LOI that we had accepted was in the, was in the Tulsa MSA as well. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think they did a, a got much feedback from their marketing efforts, um, and they came back to us um, knowing that we had, you know, once we had run the course with with that that the other deal, uh, came back to us and said, um, "Well, this is still available. Uh, you know, we've got updated numbers." And the seller was self managing, so that was also part of the issue: is that uh, the accounts were owner managed <laughs> um, or self-managed. So uh, a lot of uh, spreadsheets and, and uh, uh, I've, I've still got probably three inches of utility bills stacked up on the desk behind me. Um, so a lot of manual work went into it. Um, but yeah, it was, I want to say on market and uh, just uh, got in touch with the deal through reaching out to, to brokers and, and letting them know what we're up to. And I think that one of the things that can be a kind of a, a value play of these types of assets is the fact that, as you probably noticed, not a lot of people were bidding on that property or wanting that property because it was self-managed. And you know, I've looked at some deals before where they were self-managed and we've decided not to move forward because it is an uphill battle to try to pull information out of some of these property owners that aren't usually managing their books properly. But it can also be kind of a diamond in the rough if you can kind of get a good price on that particular acquisition as well. Absolutely. And that is uh, uh, what it took. You know, from, from day one, there was, we, we evaluated what variables and, and what risks were in it for us. And that's kind of where we shot them a number. And we said, this is, this is where we would be, uh, be buyers. And uh, it kind of went back and forth for a long time. And 
as we extracted more and more information, um, a lot of it manually and, and on site, um, uh, we kind of built up to the point where we're able to get the deal done. Now, do you have other assets in this market that made you more confident about it? We do. Um, it's in the Tulsa MSA. So it's a, a city outside of, of Tulsa city um, called Pryor, Oklahoma. Um, but, but we've been doing extensive work in the, the city, Tulsa itself. Um, a lot of networking with brokers and, and looked at, at a lot of deals. So the real eye-catching thing with this deal, which I'll say is what, what really was the diamond in the rough moment, was looking at utility expenses. Um, just had a look at the entire deal and we, we identified that the utility expenses were about 40%, 40 to 45% higher than the norm, just the, the plain average of, of where our utility expenses are in that market, they were high. So we thought, let's investigate and see, you know, is it just the way the property is or, or you know, what is that opportunity? And uh, on one of our tours, we, we walked in to a vacant unit that looked like it had been vacant for a good long while. And uh, the hot water, hot water faucet in the bathroom was running full blast. Um, the entire uh, countertop was warm. Uh, that's how long th this unit looked. Wow. I don't even know how long it had been vacant, but it's like, well, if that's, and the manager was with us, you know, showing us the property and um, she really wasn't bothered about the hot water, just literally gushing out of the faucet. We thought, wow. Um, okay. Uh, we're starting to see that maybe even this utility conservation might be easier than, uh, than we were expecting. So uh, yeah, just, you know, identifying the opportunity and then going and, uh, confirming the, the opportunity is, is uh, uh, what we spend a lot of time doing on this deal. Hey guys, uh, there's some kind of weird drilling going outside my office. So I'm just gonna turn my microphone off and I'll pipe in when they stop drilling. I said, I think you have a really good microphone because I don't hear it. So that's actually yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> you can't hear that? No. Nope. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. I'm telling <laughs> you, these microphones are great. No, that's crazy. Yeah. It's loud. Yeah. So let's dive into the part of hard money or, or, or non-refundable non hard money. And, and for those of you who are listening, when we talk about hard money, we're not talking about hard money loans or anything. We're talking about earnest money that is being put up that could go hard or non-refundable day one or after due diligence. I'm assuming that because of some of the issues with this particular property and it being self-managed, that probably wasn't a requirement. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. In this market specifically, there's not a lot of hard money being placed uh, immediately. We did um, make our earnest money uh, non-refundable after due diligence. Um, and that, that due diligence period did not start until we had our required list of uh, documents. So we gave ourselves and structured the contract accordingly to give ourselves plenty of room, plenty of runway to make sure that we had all the adequate information we needed um, to make that decision before the due diligence period was completed. 
And at what point during the, during the entire process did you guys end up touring the property? Because I know you guys obviously submitted that LOI earlier on. I'm assuming you probably toured it then. So when it came back around, did you guys do another tour or were you guys pretty confident with it at that point already? Yeah, I think we, we toured it probably three times before we actually executed a PSA and, and did our um, due diligence. Uh, one was very early on. Uh, and then second time went around with our management uh, company um, just to get their opinion and their feel on it. Um, so we, we'd, we'd spent a reasonable amount of time on the property and engaged on the property. As I say, we, we kind of had to uh, build up a lot of uh, utility bills, expenses, uh, and just, you know, uh, check for consistencies in, 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 in uh, the financials. So, yeah. Well, and, and one thing I want to point out here, which is important as well, is whenever you have earnest money like that, that you're going to say that is going to be going hard or being non-refundable after a certain period, like that due diligence period, which is fairly common, you want to make sure, just like Carl said, that you have inside of the PSA, inside of that contract, that purchase and sale agreement, that that due diligence period does not start until you have certain documents. And usually you'll want to list out the documents that you want to have up front so that the moment you get those documents, that's when the clock starts for you to have that entire time to be able to review all those documents. Otherwise, they can give it to you on the last day or maybe not even give you some stuff at all. But once that period expires, it's non-refundable. I think our due diligence period kind of went up to the day we closed because the guys were so slow in getting the documents to us. It dragged on forever. So we were like, we'll, we'll just let, we'll ride this out and, and, and let it go on. You know, we were still performing our due diligence stuff, but uh, yeah, that, that worked to our advantage quite a we bit. We kept the deal moving on our side uh, as we were extracting documents week by week. And uh, so finally, by the time, like Rodney said, by the time we finished our, our due diligence document list, uh, we closed within a couple weeks after that. What was the occupancy of this property when you acquired it? it it's right around 85% occupied. So that, that was uh, because there's two properties um, that they've kind of teeter totted. <laughs> one was down at, at uh, you know, 80% and one was at 88 and now it's kind of flip flopped and one's at sort of 83 and the other's at 90. Um, being the smaller properties at 90. So uh, it, it's kind of flip-flop, but we've settled at, at about 85. Um, it is, and do is you do attribute at. a lot of that flip-flopping and in, in fluctuations like that due to the poor management? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was another thing we noted. Uh, you know, we always knew that it was mid-80s occupied. And uh, in the sub-market, it's a well-occupied, you know, 90, mid-90s in the sub-market. So you know, our question was why, why is this one underperforming? And uh, again, when we toured the property on uh, one of the occasions, uh, there was not one unit ready and available. Not, uh, and, and I think at that stage, there was at least 20 units down, not down, just wow. 20 units, not ready. <laughs> and um, yeah, we, we, you know, said to the two managers, uh, if we arrived today and needed to lease an apartment, do you have one for us? And they confidently said no. <laughs> you know, so, it's really again, interesting. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Carl. Uh, th yeah. This owner had a master lease with an oil company. And so he had this place full um, uh, for a couple of years 
with a large oil company, he didn't have to work hard. I mean, he, he got one big check. They put all their employees there. And I don't think he ever really, uh, you know, after they pulled, pulled everybody out of there, I just don't think he was really motivated. You know, he was doing storage units and other things. And so I think that just became kind of a pain in the rear end for him after that fact. He wasn't putting money into it. He wasn't really managing it well. Didn't seem to be getting a lot of his attention after that. So, um, you know, every, every property has a story. That's kind of the story behind this property. Um, it's just a, basically an uninter uninterested owner that had it pretty good for a while and then uh, lost that, that major contract and, and never really seemed to, to bring it back after that. Was there on-site management on this one? Yes. Yep. There's yes, the, both of them. a manager at each location mm -hmm. and uh, five maintenance people. As a matter of fact, the day we, one of the days we toured, uh, and we asked about the non, are, are all the vacant units not being ready? They had five people doing yard work and no one working on make readies. <laughs> five maintenance people. Five. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But you can understand five maintenance people if you had like 20 units and they were all being worked on, but to right. be out in the yard, like playing yeah. around in the grass, that doesn't right. make any not, sense. Not blowing grass and weed eating and stuff like, I mean, it was, yeah. And needless to say, their um, uh, payroll was quite high as well, which we saw an opportunity there too. Mm -hmm. What was the, uh, um, what's the unit mix? So it's a predominantly uh, one bedrooms. So uh, we're at about 45% one bedrooms, which is, is quite high. Um, but the location uh, really lends itself to, you know, working professionals. Um, although the property is not a working professional property uh, yeah. as it is, uh, that is where we're going to be taking it. Um, but pr predominantly uh, one bedrooms, uh, two beds and uh, two bed townhomes, uh, and then a, a I think there's about 9%, three, three, uh, three bedrooms. So, um, so, um, what are the kind of the, the different price ranges for these different units? So like the one bedrooms, the twos, the two town home, and then the, and then the threes. Yeah. So it is built in the sixties. So, uh, there's uh, master metered. So we do, uh, do an, an all inclusive lease. Mm -hmm. um, which does include cable. Um, so we, 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 we uh, steering away from the all bills paid term, um, but we're at a price point of uh, around 80, uh, 800 um, for a one bedroom. The two beds are at around 900 and the three beds are right at a thousand, which we're going to start pushing to probably 1050. Okay. And are those the in-place rents or those the ones like you're on your performer, you're going to try to get the units to? Those are our performers. Okay. All right. So those are what you're, you're hoping to get it to. Um, and are you going to be changing from an all-inclusive to include the utilities and the cable to kind of breaking that out? Or are you going to still include that altogether? We're going to, we're going to start off with it all included and then see if the opportunity presents to implement rubs. Um, within that market, there are a lot of uh, residents, which we know is, is pretty common all over, getting nickel and dimed with just all the upcharges, um, which we, we're trying to offer an all-inclusive, which um, uh, includes utilities, cable, and an actu we're actually implementing valet trash as well, mm -hmm. which uh, we can, um, 
accommodate all of those in our, in our market rents and still meet our uh, pro forma numbers. Does the cable also include internet? It does not. Okay. So uh, we're exploring what uh, revenue generation we could get out of that. Um, actually just had a chat yesterday with the, with the, um, a broker who's going to advise us on, on possible um, uh, you know, revenue share that we can have on, on uh, internet. Yeah, there's lots of different options when it comes to, you know, when it, whether it be a cable contract or cable, you know, revenue shares and things, things like that, or maybe even using a service that you can actually come in and, and bolt on an internet package on top of your, your program and resell basically your internet service to your residents and as an option. So I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily force it on them, but, you know, be able to have a, a pretty good utilization with that, with some of these other assets that people are, are using this on, I think it'd be a, a good, a good position as well. Obviously it depends on the class of the asset and, you know, the tenants and how much they're utilizing that versus just streaming things off their cell phones and various things like that too. Yeah. What are some of the other, uh, amenities or things that you're, you're planning on adding or kind of doing to kind of transition the community, not necessarily from the interiors and more from the exterior side. So one of the things uh, we're going to be doing that's really kind of cool is uh, we're going to be implementing a smart laundry system uh, where residents will be able to check from their smartphone uh, when uh, units are available. Uh, how much longer is, is, is on their cycle so they don't know when to go down and, and you know, change their laundry or, uh, or when a unit's available, they'll be able to pay from their smartphones. Um, so that's one of the things we're really excited about as far as attracting a, uh, you know, younger and more professional demographic. Um, other than that, uh, we're going to be implementing uh, you know, complete exterior rehab, uh, refacing the property. It's you know, taking it away from that 60s look. Uh, putting hardy plank siding on, uh, new paint, uh, horizontal fencing, uh, horizontal rails, um, putting cool deck on, on at both pools, uh, and building outdoor lounge areas, outdoor lounge furniture, large pergola billet with grilling uh, stations outside, um, implementing uh, pet parks at, at both locations, and one of the one of the uh, both of the of the properties face uh, an interstate, and so at one property there's a large wall that uh, is facing the the interstate. We're going to have a big mur mural 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 painted there. Easy for me to say, uh, <laughs> right uh, behind the pet park, so it'll be really visible, bright, vivid, uh, something that's easy to see from the highway, and and uh, hopefully we'll bring in some traffic. What's the current budget for the exterior upfits on the properties? Well, our overall budget's around two and a quarter million. Okay. Um, it's broken down. How would you say, Carl? Uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're about 750,000 on the exterior. Pretty strong. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do like when you said changing the exterior of, a, of the building. 1960s is sometimes hard to play with, but to be able to go in there and reface the entire exterior, especially with Hardy Plank, I think it'll definitely make a nice upfit and uplift for that particular type of a community. We've got that old German look. You seen those old German buildings with the ornate, all the ornate woodwork and the, oh yes, you know. So we're yeah. we're just kind of modernizing a little bit, especially with the horizontal, um, you know, with the railways that are really ornate, and we're gonna just horizontal, you know. Yeah, well, I think that'll be great. That's that's a great choice there. Up a little bit. 
I bet, uh, uh, I bet Mike had something to do with those decisions. Oh yeah. His little, his little background in construction there. I say little, but I'm sure he's got a lot more than just a little. <laughs> he's got a few gray hairs there, so it's probably a little bit more than a little, but uh, yeah. we, won't, we won't dive deep there. Um, so let's talk about the interiors. What are you doing to the interiors of these units to kind of transform them to kind of match the exterior that you're going to be doing on this particular um, community? Uh, well, as far as interiors go, um, really everything the resident is going to touch will, have, will look and feel new. Um, we have solid flooring in most all the units. Uh, where it is needed, we will replace the flooring, but, but for the most part, all the flooring is really solid uh, to this point. So, you know, two-tone paint, resurface counters, reface cabinets. Uh, really, the, the vendor we're using um, is, they have their own cabinet shop, and we're really able to do some cool stuff with cabin door fronts. We actually have a textured look to them. Uh, it's, it's a real modern look. Um, so refacing the cabinets, uh, like I said, resurfacing all the countertops, new plumbing and lighting fixtures, new low flow, you know, toilets and shower heads. Actually gonna go, they're doing a sweep right off the bat of all the units, putting in, uh, changing out the, the toilets and uh, shower heads and, and aerators to start our immediate um, utility conservation right off the bat. And make sure that the hot water is turned off. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and we're also including black appliance package. So uh, every, nice. every unit will be uh, updated with their appliances as well, just because that's, that's what supported in that little submarket and uh, these dated um, appliances just, just wouldn't lend to what, what the bigger picture is for the property. Right. Are you going from like coil to flat on the stove? It, it's a complete mix. <laughs> so yes, some of them are coil. Um, some are even gas uh, at the one property that they uh, flip-flopped. Um, but yeah, it, it's going to be solid plate um, stovetops and not coils. Yeah, everything, everything will be a, a uniform look. Um, it, uh, it, it'll be really nice. Uh, and the thing about it is, is we were, we we're going to be able to go into these units, make the upgrades we're making, um, provide, like I said, everything with a new look and feel to the resident, uh, and our our rents are going to still be at or below most all the comps in the submarket, uh, which we toured seven different comps uh, in in the immediate submarket, and every one of them have a, a dated look. So we're going to have basically a brand new unit interior, brand new look and feel exterior. Uh, with market rent or with rents at or below uh, the competitive um, properties. Our, in our performer rent bumps, I don't know if we interest, it's $80 per unit is what we're going for. Okay. So $80 rent bumps. And the interior, just kind of doing some backwards math. I think you had mentioned, uh, Mike, that they were, you were doing about two and a quarter, took out the 750 for the exterior, which leaves us 1.5 divided by the 174 units, about $8,600 a door on the interior. Is that about right? Mm -hmm. Yep. 8620 is what I came up with there. Okay, cool. Um, so one of the other things I want to dive in now is about the due diligence. So obviously had a little bit of a trouble getting some of the documentation and different things from the financial side, the financial due diligence is what we called, um, what about from the on-site due diligence? What kind of things maybe came up during that process? Well, um, we had our uh, property management company um, 
works well with us on our due diligence and and we obviously that it's funny we've we've had people of different opinions but we, we're a firm opinion you need a tour every unit on due diligence uh we had a chat or a discussion the other week someone felt that you only needed to do about 20 percent to get a feel for the property um which uh <laughs> is not the case and, and every proved, single unit that's we, yeah so yeah, we got a great um, story about how that would have burned us on on one of our deals one of our deals we would be uh underwater right now which uh yeah we didn't do it um so nothing i guess more water and utility conservation came to light of just you know uh, running toilets um a few residents identified, which, you know, would probably be residents who would want to keep close tabs on uh, and decide whether they renew with us or whether they, we, you know, don't renew with them. Oklahoma is one of those great states um, where uh, you can give a resident a non-renewal. So, uh, yeah, we just got to got a feel and then also listen to a lot of residents about issues um which may not have been forthcoming um it is a boiler and chiller system so there were a handful of residents who uh let us know that you know they're struggling with hot water and you know do we have anything in our budget to to take care of uh, uh you know mechanicals make sure they they're getting their hot water and uh, just just a little insight you know on, on things like that um uh, and really, it, it, it was an interesting due diligence in terms of the physical, um, there was no major surprises, but there was a lot of feedback from residents as to what would make their lives better and make the community better. So, um, yeah, no, no real surprises. I'm just trying to think uh, if One of if the biggest anything, things, I think, but, uh, sorry, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say uh, or add that one of the biggest things that it seemed to come out was just uh, confirming and finding more opportunity for um, to increase uh, income through different measures, um, whether it be utility um, or amenity uh, additions, um, things of that nature. I mean, the pets, for example, I don't think that it was alarming the amount of pets that were there versus what kind of, you know, other income was shown uh, during our, our financial due diligence portion. So we feel that uh, we'll be able to enforce those things and, and uh, actually increase our other income significantly as well. So let's shift here a little bit, talked a lot about the property, what we're gonna be doing with it, how we found it. Let's talk about the financing piece of it. So what did you guys do as far as the financing piece for this particular acquisition? We've gone with the bridge, uh, given the occupancy, um, we just didn't feel comfortable that agency, you know, we could get there. Um, just records weren't strong enough for, for agency a and the amount of CapEx we're doing. Uh, we wanted to, to maximize, um, you know, proceeds for handling that. So we've gone with a uh, 36 month bridge, which also has two 12 month extensions. So, uh, it, it, could potentially be a, a 60 month uh, bridge um, debt. What kind of interest did you get on that one? We got 300 over the 30 day LIBOR, um, which when we closed, uh, LIBOR was at 172. 
So our, our all-in rate is, is uh, 472 for this initial 30-day period, and then we adjust. Um, but we did also buy a rate cap, so uh, we're protected from from how high it could go. I think we're uh, we're at five and uh, an all-in rate of I think it's a five five twenty-five for the first year, five fifty for the second year, and uh, five seventy-five for year three. Um, so. And it's amazing right now how cheap, you know, this is now we're talking December 2019. So a month after you closed on that, but it's, it's amazing to me right now on the bridge debt, how cheap those rate caps are, because if you actually look at the 60, the 60 month future forward curve LIBOR, it stays below two almost the entire time. And so the, the risk of it actually going up and even touching some of those rates is very low right now, which is why those, those rate caps are really cheap right now as well. Um, now, were you able to negotiate a floor on LIBOR? Because I know, obviously, when, we, when we're buying rate caps, we're actually kind of negotiating, if you will, our ceiling as to how high we're willing to pay on the interest. When we're negotiating with debt, we're obviously looking for how low, because a lot of these lenders will say, all right, we're going to base it off of the floating LIBOR curve or the floating LIBOR, but if it goes below a certain amount, there's going to be what's called a floor on their end to protect their debt or downside. Was there some form of a floor that you negotiated with them on that? Yeah, they gave us a floor at closing. Okay. So uh, we did get LIBOR of the day. Um, so we're at you know, our floor all in would be uh, 472, which is again for bridge debt. Uh, can't really complain about, about sure. 472 oh, yeah. rates. <laughs> what did you originally underwrite it at? Uh, 525. Okay. So. It's a nice extra bump in the cash. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So typical 311, uh, on the floor on closing 4.72 probably would stay there for, for a while for sure. Maybe a little fluctuation here and there. Um, what's the plan after that is the plan to re to, to, to refinance and be able to return invest money back to investors and do they, your investors maintain their regional equity position or are you planning to just refinance it um, and get out all of your investors or number three, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I know you already know the answer to this, or are you planning to sell it whenever you get done, you know, you know, doing the renovations and the value add and uh, being able to move into a different property? Well, we, we have a couple different options. I mean, obviously it depends on uh, what, ha what is happening in the market at the time that we're, uh, we're willing and able to, to sell. But um, if we were to, our, our plan is to actually sell and exit um, at or during year three. And, uh, but if, um, if we were to refinance, we would keep our investors in, you know, do some capital return, keep our investors in. Uh, you know, we, we feel that um, we want them to be able to share and the upside uh, just as much as, as we are. We, we view our investors as investor partners, not just investors. This is truly a business like we talked about earlier on. And in this business that we're talking about, the apartment syndication business, our customers are the investors. And we have to make sure that as we set in, in place our investor relations piece, that we always keep them in mind 
And so I think that's very good that you guys have done that. It's exactly what our group does as well. What are you guys doing when you exit? Are you guys tr going to try? Obviously, you can't guarantee a 1031, but do you guys, are you guys, is your, is your plan to actually try to 1031 that into another asset or will you just sell the asset and disperse and then have the, the, the capital gains upon sale? We, we have had several investors uh, who are looking for more long-term deals. So we may have a portion of those that we can uh, 1031 into another, another asset. Okay, good. So how did you structure the deal with investors? Carl? In terms of uh, just the returns? Yeah, so kind of a, give me a breakdown of equity splits and structures and the returns and stuff like that. Just kind of a, a high level overview. So uh, we have got a 6% PREF to our investors and then a 60-40 equity split. Uh, but what we've done is our cash flow is not being considered return of capital. It's being return on capital. So that equity split upon sale will only happen once they've received back at sale 100% of the initial investment. So because this is a big uh, reposition deal, we wanted to make sure that investors have one, at least made a 6% return on their money um, before any split takes place. So they will have a six pref and then the cash flow will be enjoyed up until sale. And then at sale, they will receive 100% of the initial investment back. And then we do the, the equity split thereafter. So uh, there's a lot of, um, pressure on us to perform else uh, there's not going to be, uh, um, you know, our, our, our returns are really based on that back-end equity. That's a true uh, alignment of interest in. we feel. Sure. So are, are you basically saying that there's no cash flow promote? It's only a 60-40 on the sale promote? There is 60-40 on the cash flow as well after the six prep. Okay. So while you're holding the asset, you'll do uh, 6% upfront to the investors and then the rest of it is split 60-40 with no peri pursue. Correct. And then uh, at the end, yeah, full return of, of initial capital and the split thereafter. Good. That's, that's great. I, I like to be able to see that. So um, what about your fees? What's, what's kind of your, your typical fee structure on these assets? So this deal, given the amount of time, effort, resource we had put in, um, we put in three points on acquisition, 2% two, uh, 2 asset management, and zero disposition, zero refinance kind okay. of fees. One thing I will, I'm going to give you as a little bit of a tip. And so for the listeners who are, are listening, this will be something that we've done recently as well. And it again... I keep on saying this is a business and we're trying to take care of our investors. And this is some, one of the ways that we started to align with our investors. We do, you know, acquisition fee upfront. It's hard to kind of say, you know, it's, it can't be performance-based. Obviously you're already working all the way up until closing. That is performance, right? I know you guys worked on this one for a long time. I think 3% for this type of an acquisition heavy lift is right in line with what you guys are, are, are charging there. Um, ours is typically 2%, but we've charged, you know, up to three and a half percent if it's a heavy lift like that. So I, I, I agree with you on that. One of the things that we started to do with our, uh, our asset management fee and then our disposition fee, we don't charge a refinance fee because it's a little bit harder on a performance basis on that to be able to calculate the way I'm going to tell you. Uh, but 
what we do with the asset management fee is that if we can't at least hit the preferred return, then we don't take the asset management fee. And the reason why we started to do that is because I've been personally inside of some syndications where we have not hit the preferred returns, but the, the sponsorship team was still taking the asset management fee. And to me, I feel like that's, an, that's a misalignment of interest. I would rather as a syndicator want to make sure my investors were taken care of first. So we always make sure that the investors get their return first. And is there anything over on top of that, then we'll provide that asset management fee. And then, and so that's kind of a performance base there as well. The second thing we do with the disposition fee, I know you guys aren't charging it, but you could charge it and do it similar to what we're doing. Obviously not on this one, because it's, you know, in the past, but moving mm -hmm. forward, you can bake into it that 1% disposition fee or even 2%, wherever you want to, wherever you want to you know, fall in line. We typically do a 1%, but we base it off of the original projections. Meaning if we project an original 16% IRR, on, on our hold period, if we don't hit at least a 16%, then we are not taking that disposition fee. But if we can outperform the property, we'll take that disposition fee before the rest of the, the cash flows are split. I like it. Yeah. And that way it doesn't actually affect your numbers when you're trying to calculate your rent, your, your underwrite or anything like that. You only have to calculate it at all because it's all after your projections and you just put it into your operating agreement. That's how it's split. I like it. Carl, you taking you. notes? Good to know. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit of a tip there, but um, I like the whole structure. It, it's, it's great. Uh, very similar to what we're doing in our group as well. Um, last, a, couple of, a couple of other questions is how did you raise the capital for uh, this acquisition? And also how much were you raising for this one as well? This was a 506C. First time we've done one, our first raise was a 506B. Um, and so we decided to give this a shot. We had a, a large equity raiser that we brought into the deal um, and, and kind of, uh, he had a, a, a group of investors that he had um, tapped to bring into this deal, which didn't quite play out, but we, we, we went the 506C route just for that reason. So we could advertise uh, to his investors. And um, it was really interesting, just a different, totally different. Do you do C's or B's? What do you do? We primarily do B's. We've done one C in the past okay. and, uh, and have not done it again. And it's, I don't know if it wasn't necessarily because it was more challenging or harder. It's just we've done fairly well with a, a 506B structure and haven't sure. really needed to go to a C. But um, I'm, I'm curious to know what your opinion was on the process between the C's. You know, it was interesting because we were able to advertise more. I, I don't know when we do it again, if we'll go back and do the B again. Um, because the, the original reason we did the C didn't, didn't quite pan out. Yeah. But uh, it's really painful when you're doing a C and then you have a handful of investors from your previous deals that are, you know, 506B qualified and you can't bring them into the deal. That hurts, you know, when you're, when you're trying to raise. But our total, our total raise was $2.5 million. Um, and, you know, it went pretty smooth. You know, it, we, we brought in some other equity raisers um, to help us raise some capital and uh, brought them in as GPs. And uh, I think it took us about three weeks to raise two and a half million. So um, yeah, we're, I don't know if we'll do that again, but we, we've done a C, we've done a B. And, and the next time we, we do a deal, we'll have to sit back and really think it through how, how we want to take the next one down. So um, well, I know we've talked a lot about your particular acquisition here. I'm running up against the clock here and have to jump on another podcast here. But I do want you guys to share with the audience a little bit about how they can reach out to you if they have some further questions about maybe this particular acquisition or maybe they want to join you on one of your future opportunities. They can visit our website at trident 
multifamily.com, tridentmultifamily.com, uh, or they can send any of us an email. They can hit our general email box at info at tridentmultifamily.com or any of the three of us, Mike, Rodney, or Carl with a C. Mike, let's, let's, let's see if you can point to Trident. Can you point to the, to your logo? Ah, good job. <laughs> yeah, the whole reverse imaging thing. Gets me uh, Remind, your logo reminds me of the Maserati logo. It was, uh, it was a nice model. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Well, for those of you who are interested, go to tridentmultifamily.com. Find some more information about Mike, Rodney, and Carl. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here. I know you've provided a lot of good information to our audience and looking forward to having you on back again in 2020 as you continue to close more deals. Awesome. Great. Thanks, man. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you.